1 Samuel 13, 13 and 14. This is the prophet Samuel speaking to King Saul. You have done foolishly. You haven't kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people because you haven't kept what the Lord commanded you. So that brings us to today, a look at the life of King David of Israel. And if you have a handout there, you can see that it takes up much of First and Second Samuel and part of First Kings, and then also much of First Chronicles, because First and Second Chronicles say again in a little different way the information that you read in First and Second Kings. And so you know that if we just have 30 minutes, I'm not going to be able to do justice to the whole life of David. But I want to show you some high points, and then I want to focus on a very short and obscure story about David that really demonstrates something important about his character. But he was probably born about 1040 BC. He only lived to be 70. So it wasn't a real long life, but he was the youngest of eight boys and he had some sisters too. We're not sure exactly how many. One of his sister's boys ended up in his military later, but he was the designated shepherd for the family. Now you might recall that these are descendants of Boaz and Ruth. And we looked at the story of Ruth just a few weeks ago, but David, and all these other boys, the sons of Jesse, are the great-grandsons of Ruth and Boaz. So he was the shepherd, and as a teenager, he would sit out and watch the sheep, getting a feel for what it would be like to take care of a flock, kind of like being a pastor in a way. He was also a wonderful musician, and he wrote many of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. And in fact, he later became the designated musician for King Saul, even after he had been anointed to be the next king over Israel. King Saul gradually seemed to descend into a sort of mental illness that was paranoia, perhaps, and these fits of anger would come on him. And they discovered that one of the things that eased this anger was if someone would play soothing music for him. And so someone who knew about David's skills suggested that he be brought in. And so eventually he came to live with King Saul for a season. After a while though, King Saul began to fear him and realized that he was probably going to be the next king. And so David had to flee for his life. And for years, he was on the lamb from King Saul. So he didn't actually become king until he was 30. And he was only king of his own tribe for a while, the tribe of Judah for seven years. Then for 33 more years, he was the king of the entire nation of Israel and uh, so we could say that in all, he reigned for 40 years. David had at least five actual wives, 
four of them bore him children. He also had some concubines. We know that he had 20 sons, if you count the son that died, that was the first child that he had with Bathsheba. And he had some daughters as well and uh, died at the age of 70. He was in bed sick for a period of time before he died as well. But at any rate, here he is, you see, uh, as the shepherd. And then we move on and uh, we see here a beautiful painting by Elizabeth Jane Gardner Bogaro. It's called The Shepherd David. We know from David talking about his experience when he was getting ready to go up before Goliath the giant, he recounted that when he was a shepherd, he had killed both a lion and a bear. Do you remember him saying that? So you can't go back in scripture and read the story, but you can read where he says that it happened in the past. And this beautiful painting, you see that he is straddling that lion there. And he has that well little lamb in his arms that he saved that was painted oil on canvas in about 1895. And it's in a museum in, uh, let's see, the gift of Wallace and Wilhelmina Holiday in the National Museum of Women in the Arts. But uh, after David was a shepherd then, one day, the prophet Samuel showed up at his house and announced to his father, Jesse, that they were looking for one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king over Israel. Now, this had to be done in secret because Israel had a king at the time, and that's a pretty serious capital offense, and you can lose your head pretty quick if you go around causing an insurrection while there is a king saying we're anointing another king. So it was done in secret, but you might recall that Jesse starts to bring his boys one by one up in front of Samuel. And Samuel had not met them before. The oldest boy's name was Eliab. And when Eliab comes forward, Eliab is tall and he's good looking. And Samuel thinks to himself, oh, wow, this is obviously the one. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord says something very important to Samuel in his heart. He says, don't look on him and his stature and his appearance, for the Lord doesn't see as man sees Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Remember that? That's the context of that famous verse. Anyway, so Jesse, Samuel says, no, God hasn't chosen this one. And so Jesse progressively then brings in boy number two and boy number three and boy number four. And they all stand before Samuel and Samuel says, no, it's not this one. Finally, they get through seven of them and he says, it's none of these. Is this all the sons you have? And he says, no, there's one other young boy out in the fields with the sheep. And Samuel says, bring him in. So they bring in David and he's just a teenager, you know, like a senior in high school or something. The Bible says he had a good appearance and he was ready. So, you know, this pink cheeked kid comes in and this is the occasion in which Samuel pours the oil on him. And in verse 13, it says, the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. 
Well, it wasn't too much longer after that that the Philistines came against the uh, military of Israel and King Saul, and they sent their giant every day to confront and defy for 40 days in a row. And some of Jesse's sons were in the military. So Jesse sends shepherd David to go check on him. And you remember the story of how he slays the giant. And when he's standing there, you know, he had tried on King Saul's armor and it was too big and he wasn't used to it. And he'd set it aside and all he had was his sling and some stones in his pocket. When he came and confronted this massive giant with all of this armor and in fact, with a kid that ran before him who was his shield bearer, he said to that giant, you come to me with sword and spear and shield but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And you know, he was so good with that sling. He had killed the bear and he had killed the lion, which kind of brings up the idea that God prepares us ahead of time for things that are coming in the future that we don't even know about. And he hits him in the one place that's exposed, his forehead, knocks him down and then cuts off his head with the soldier's own sword, a marvelous victory. So eventually, as I said previously, he becomes King Saul's musician, but on a couple of occasions, while he was trying to soothe King Saul's probably mentally ill moods and he's playing and he's singing, Saul goes into a fit of rage and he's holding a javelin. Maybe he's just been fiddling with this javelin because he's nervous. And all of a sudden he picks it up and he throws it across the room and he tries to pin David to the wall with it. And so the scripture tells us in chapter 18, verse 12, that Saul was afraid of David. And he finally sent him away. He says, I think I'm going to make you a captain in my army. And he put him in charge of a thousand men. The Bible says that David behaved himself wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Well, Saul promised he could marry his daughter, and then he reneged on it. Then later, he said to David, if you'll kill a hundred Philistines, then you can marry my other daughter. Well, David did him one better and killed 200 and uh, ended up becoming King Saul's son-in-law. So here we are looking at the life of this anointed man who is still very young, and we move forward. Finally, things just get so bad with Saul that he has to say goodbye to his best friend, Saul's son, Jonathan. And he is on the run for his life. He gathers together a band of military men, kind of a group of former ne'er-do-wells. Some of them had skipped out on some bills they should have paid, but they became his army, three or 400 men. And for years, he lived that way. And it was tough. Part of the time he lived with the Philistines. And uh, then finally, Saul is wounded in battle and commits suicide. And his son succeeds him for a while as king over part of Israel, but he's real weak and he's losing power. And David becomes the king of his own tribe of Judah. And so we come now to 2 Samuel 5, and it's probably about 1003 BC. I know it says 1007 there. It's probably 1003 BC. And David 
was anointed to be the next king of Israel about 20 years ago, and it still has not happened in its fullness. He's the king of the Jews that are in the tribe of Judah, but no more. <clears throat> and then finally, <clears throat> this last weak son of Saul is killed, and he is able to assume the throne, and he moves the capital city from Hebron to Jerusalem. He's 37 years old. He's got some experience being king of the small group. Sorry for the delay. This thing doesn't respond very well. And so you can see here where Hebron is on there, just west of the Dead Sea. And you have to go a little bit north to get to the new capital city. Well, that new capital city was inhabited by people who weren't Jews at that time. It was called Jebus, and the Jebusites lived in Jebus or Jebus. And uh, he had just moved them out of there, and the Philistines were after him, and there was a lot of conflict. So I wanted to give this interesting short little story a bit of context here. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him, but David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now, the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So I wanted you to see where that is. Right there where it's circled, you see it's just a little bit west of the capital city, Jerusalem. Imagine looking out there and seeing all of these armed soldiers, <clears throat> and they've come to stay, and so some of them have set up tents, and it's pretty intimidating. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go over and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? <coughs> there was actually a prescribed way that the king could go to one of the priests who was in possession of this object called the Urim and the Thummim or the Thummim. And you could ask the Lord a yes or no question and the priest would find out the answer from the Lord. The Lord answered him, go for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal Perazim and there he defeated them. And he said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called the Lord who breaks out, Baal Perazim. That's little red star there in the valley of Rephaim is about where that place was. So this is what's been going on. The Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up <clears throat> and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, don't go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. I love this part. Sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees. People don't march in the tops of trees. There's nothing up there but flimsy little branches and leaves. That would have to be the army of the Lord. 
that's going with you. And so you listen, and when you hear the sound of it marching over your head, you know he's with you. Because that'll mean the Lord has gone out in front of you. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. That's quite a span there. So here we are, and you get the scene now. So here's this young David. He's the new king over all Israel. He's having to deal with these pesky enemies that keep invading. And sometimes he has to hide and he has to spend time in the stronghold. And so here we still are in 2 Samuel 5, and we come to a very interesting story. During harvest time, so this is probably the barley harvest in April because kings went out to fight in the spring after the early rains. Three of the 30 chief men, he had these warriors that are mentioned several times in scripture called the 30. And three of those guys came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Okay, so here we go again. The Philistines are back down in that valley. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. Now you probably remember that David was born in Bethlehem, just like Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was the place where Ruth and Boaz had lived. And so this was a several generation thing for this family. <clears throat> but now the Philistines are there and David is holed up in a cave southwest of there in Adullam. And by the way, there's a nearly identical passage that recounts the same story in 1 Chronicles 11. So he's just waiting and he's in hiding and David longed for water. And he said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, I don't think that the man had nothing to drink. I just think that it probably wasn't very good. If it was cave water, maybe it was full of minerals and it didn't taste that great. Or maybe there wasn't that much rain and so they were having to get muddy water out of puddles and they're trying to strain the dirt and it just doesn't taste very good and you have to go, okay, I'm really, really thirsty and I know I gotta drink something, but this will have to do and just hold my nose and try to gulp it down and not think about it too much. I used to spend the night with a friend of mine in junior high. Her name was Lori and her parents had a sulfur well. You walk in the house and the smell of that sulfur would hit you. And I just oh, try not to drink very much while I was there. And they would make orange juice from concentrate. So I'd get up early in the morning and I'd be thirsty and I'd think, well, at least I can drink the orange juice. Oops, it was made with sulfur water, you know, so you just sort of get by with it and you get home or maybe you get home from a trip. And you think, boy, I'm glad to have my good old water back because it just doesn't taste the same anywhere else. Well, this was David. He's under a lot of stress and he's thinking about this simple pleasure of, oh, the water from the well near Bethlehem. Well, if you think this is a fantasy, let me show you that if you went to Bethlehem, you can still go to the place that used to be right outside the city limits, but the city has grown, and so now it's in the city limits, where they know where that place is. 
This is a, a picture, a random picture. This thing is so sensitive. Uh, with a random person, I don't know who that is, but those two white structures that he's kind of between are two of the three cisterns that are still there and they have it on good authority that those are the ones. In fact, they dug down there and in 1895, a mosaic pavement of a church from the fifth or sixth century with a Greek inscription was discovered east of those cisterns. But uh, they're known as David's Wells. And here's another good view of it. You can see all three of them there, well known. But they've been providing water for a very long time, and that's what David was talking about. He just says, sure wish I had a drink from that good old well near Bethlehem. So the three mighty men, you know, the three men that were part of the 30 that I mentioned before that had come down to the cave to visit him, they love their commander and king so much that they think, you know, I bet we could sneak over there and get that for him. So they broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. Now, this would have to have been under cover of darkness, surely. But imagine these big old burly guys. And I don't know how much they even took with them in the way of weapons. They were not going to kill anybody. They just wanted to break through, get to that water, dip themselves a jug, not even a whole bunch for a whole bunch of people. We don't have any pack animals. We're not going to load a bunch of canteens on oxen or donkeys. We're not going to pull water with a cart. We just need one jug because he's not dehydrated. He just wants a drink because it tastes good. So they're all looking forward to his reaction. Won't he be surprised when we show up and we say, we have something special for you. We got some water from Bethlehem. So they go in and they say, King David, we brought you back some water from the well of Bethlehem. Now here is the clincher. He refused to drink it. Instead, he pours it out as an offering to the Lord. And he says, far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. Isn't it the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? That's the whole story. They just went to get him some water and they brought it to him and he said, I'm pouring it out to the Lord. Why would we look at this story? The man lived to be 70 years old. This was a few minutes of one day of his life. He did all kinds of stuff. He killed Goliath. He had an adulterous affair that got him off track and messed him up really bad. He had some other marvelous victories. He wrote fantastic psalms. He was a prophet. He was a musician. Why do we pick a story like this? Because it shows what we looked at at the very beginning of this lesson, where Samuel heard from God that he was going to pick a man after his own heart to be the next king. And 
What I see here is that he can discern the sacred. The first thing he said would, was, isn't it the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? So maybe the message for us is that we need to learn today to discern the sacred. This act of devotion delighted the heart of David, and he saw it as a sacrifice of which the Lord alone was worthy. This is too holy. Oh, no, this is holy water, he's basically saying. So what does holy mean? Something that is sacred is something that's special or set apart or devoted or designated to God. So what is there in your life that needs to be set apart or devoted to God? What about life itself or sex or the Lord's day or your tithe or time alone with God or his precious word or the ministry that he has called you to? Are you tracking with me here? If you recognize that sex is sacred, for example, then you won't be so inclined to laugh at a dirty joke or look at porn or sleep around because you'll go, oh no, don't talk about something holy like that. If you recognize that life is sacred, you won't be so inclined to believe that sick people should be legally allowed to commit suicide or that unborn babies are disposable or that it's okay to take foolish risks that put you at the uh, increased risk of dying. Or if you recognize that the Lord's day is sacred, then you won't be so quick to lay out a church or go about your life as business as usual or catch up on chores or put in extra hours of overtime on his day. If you recognize your tithe as sacred, then you'll pay it first. You see, this is what David must have been going on. He knew the law. He loved it. He wrote about it in Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, practically every verse. He mentions specifically the word of God. And it says here, any Israelite or any alien living among them who eats any blood, I'll set my face against that person who eats blood and I'll cut him off from his people for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And then he said again, none of you may eat blood. And remember, David had said, oh, this water, you might be saying, oh, calm down. It's just water. Could we, could we get off the religious high horse and just live our lives and take a gift and appreciate that it was given and drink up for crying out loud? But David didn't look at it that way. He said, these men risked their lives to bring me this precious gift. This is like their own blood. And this belongs only to God. And so he poured it out reverently before them to God. And if we then discern the sacred, then the second part comes in actually making the sacrifice. You know, you can be absolutely certain that as a Christian, God will call you to make some sacrifices. You can't just say, well, I'm sure glad I don't live in a place where there's no persecution, where there's persecution, or, well, I've never really felt called to fast, or I don't think all Christians have to pray that much. You have been called 
to sacrifice yourself in some way to give, to pray, to fast, to minister, to devote yourself to his service. This relationship that we have with him is supposed to be a two-way deal. So he sets the example by making the ultimate sacrifice, but then he expects his wife, us, the church, the body of Christ, to also give ourselves to him, not because we're saying, well, I got to do a bunch of good stuff or I'm not going to make it to heaven, but because we say, oh, you are worthy of this small thing that I have and I offer it to you. And if you don't think that's biblical, let's have a look at what Paul said in Romans 12, one and two. Therefore, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, worship can take a lot of forms. And maybe later this morning, for you, it will take the form of standing up while we sing or raising your hands or paying attention and taking notes during the sermon or interceding for someone. But for David on that day, he had something very valuable because it represented the devotion of his men and that they risked their lives. And he took that and instead of chug a lug, he pours it out and you can hear it splattering on the ground. And you see it soaking into the ground and you see how well pleased God is with this man after his own heart. So beautiful. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So that doesn't mean that we have to live our whole lives as ascetics and never enjoy any pleasures, but it does mean that we have to keep in mind while we follow what it says in Ecclesiastes about there's nothing better for a man than to, to enjoy the fruits of his labor, that Jesus also said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, it's real interesting to me that the same David that poured that water out for God also wrote a prophetic psalm, Psalm 22. The whole psalm looks forward to the crucifixion. And if you haven't read that lately, you go back and will be amazed about how it recounts everything that Christ suffered. And so here's Christ on the cross in Psalm 22. And we get down to verse 14, and here's David writing, and he writes, and this is like Jesus speaking while on the cross, I am poured out like water. So here's the same man that knows what a sacrifice of water is like, and he's saying through the mouth of Christ, looking into the future a thousand years, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. So he made a small sacrifice, and then he looked forward to the one who would make the ultimate sacrifice of his own life, poured out like water. And this sacrifice also brings up the third point, which is to control desire. 
that part in the story where it says he refused to drink it? Imagine how hard that must have been. He had been longing for that so much that he actually talked about it. Oh, I sure wish I had a drink. And in fact, I thought you might be interested. I have here The Beauty of Holy Choice is a book I wrote several years ago. And this particular story is included in that. And if you would like one of those books, just take one on the way out. David could have thrown his head back, hoisted that jug of water, and chugged a lug, couldn't he? He could have let that precious, quote-unquote, blood water drip down his face, drunk until he couldn't hold anymore, and then wiped his mouth with the back of his hand. But to do so in those circumstances would have been lustful, because lust is just inordinate desire. You know, Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says, I say walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And it is actually possible to say no to that old flesh. And so you have a hankering to go shopping and buy some things you don't need and can't afford. Make a decision not to do it and abstain. You have a hankering for some sort of sexual sin It's pulling you ever so strongly to do what your conscience tells you you should stay away from. Make a decision not to do it and abstain. You feel like eating or drinking something that you know good and well the Lord would have you leave off. Make a decision not to do it and abstain. That's what David did. Live by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the spirit and the spirit what's contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you don't know what you want. I thought it was interesting in Philippians 3, 17 through 19. He says, join with others in following my example. This is Paul talking, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I've often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their minds on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Maybe it's not food for you. Maybe it's phone or sleep or prescription pills or even your spouse. We can be hung up on anything, but the Lord is asking us to put him first. And the one thing that you can say about David who made a lot of mistakes is that he was not an idolater. How can I be so sure? Because he took that thing that he was longing for and he said, no, this is for the one who's first place in my life. And he poured it so beautiful. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. 